So the interviewer says, Harry, what is it about, what is it about apartment buildings that kept you going? Harry said, I always liked the idea that a group of people would pool their money together and give it to me so I could pay off the mortgage every month. So I could pay for management companies to take care of the tenants and take their phone calls and collect the rents. So I could hire maintenance guys to swing the hammers and take out the trash and clean the toilets. And at the end of the month, they give me so much money that I had extra money, money that I could go out and put into a savings account, go out and spend it or, or, or reinvest. And I thought, you know, a light bulb went off my head and I thought, you know, if that's true, that if that's really true, I want in. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and you are in for a treat. I've got the man, the myth, the legend, legend, David Lindahl in with me today. How are things up in Boston? Things are good. Things are really good up here. It's a little bit warm uh, this summer, warm and rainy, but it's been great. Okay, you got to tell me, man. What's going on with the Viking helmet over there in the corner? (laughs) All right, so I'm Swedish. I'm of Swedish heritage. I'm third generation Swedish American. And I found that in a clean out 19 years ago when I was cleaning out properties for banks and I was just starting my real estate investing business. I was doing smaller properties. And uh, actually, one of my guys brought it over to me and said, Hey, look what I found. And I said, That's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> and I've had it ever since. Carrying it around from place to place. And then yeah. I look over your other shoulder, I think it's your right shoulder, and there's two books up there. Are you an author? Yeah, I've read a couple of books. Multi-family millions and emerging real estate markets. Now, yeah. one of those, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, one of those books has a really amazing story. And I'm not sure if most people actually understand how you got your first book deal. You were willing to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Most people think I wrote the books to start an education business. But in reality, I had been down in Texarkana, Texas. It was my third emerging market. You know, I'd gone from uh, a bunch of uh, small properties in Brockton, Massachusetts, 43 to 60 unit properties. The market changed. I learned about market cycles. I realized all the money I made, all the equity that I had, I either had to cash it out or move to another market and do it again. And now I bit by the bug. It's like, I'm going to move to another market. But I only was doing smaller properties back then, and I had to move up to bigger ones. So I went to Montgomery. I did uh, 40 and 80. I went over to Jacksonville, Mississippi, and did, I mean, Jackson, Mississippi. I did a 350 unit. And then I went to Huntsville and then over to Texarkana. So I'm at Texarkana. I've got two properties over there, and I'm by myself. I'm meeting at a bar because I was alone. It was a restaurant. I was at the bar. And the guy next to me starts talking to me. And what people don't realize is I am a, I am a complete introvert. I do not talk to anybody I don't know. I don't like people coming up to me and talking to me. You know, when I'm at a seminar teaching, that's different. But I just, I'm the worst networker in the world because I'm the wallflower, you know. So uh, this guy starts talking to me and I'm thinking, oh God, he's talking to me. And uh, he realized that I wasn't from the area because of my accent. And he's like, what are you doing down here? And I said, oh, I'm buying properties. And he goes, why are you somebody from Boston buying properties down in Texarkana? And I started explaining to him about emerging markets. And he said, oh, he says, that's really interesting. He says, you know, I'm a writer for Kiplinger's magazine. 
And I said, really? Because my father, I knew read Kiplinger's and I'd been in a rock band for eight years. And, you know, I created quite a reputation for myself. I had a lot of um, making up to do for my parents. And my father was the one that told me not to get into the real estate business, because if I did, I was going to fail and I was going to be, you know, I was going to screw up again and blah, blah, blah. So uh, when he said, I'm a writer for Kiplinger's, can I do an article on you about emerging markets? I was like, oh, yeah. This is going to be great because because I was going to, I was going to be the one I knew that was going to hand that to my father. I was going to wait until it arrived, and that's what happened. He did the article. You know, I was at my father's house and I went to the mailbox. I, I grabbed. It and I said, "Dad, take a look at Kiplinger's this month," and he goes, "What about it?" And I said, "Page thirty four. And there I was. You know, Dave Lindahl, Emerging Markets, and he was just like his his chin hit his chest, and it was uh, so it was a great moment for me at that particular time. And so about a month from later from that. Uh, somebody from Wiley, John John Naramore from Wiley called me up and said, I just read this article in Kiplinger's magazine. Would you be interested in writing a book about that? And I thought this would make my mother really proud, an author. And I said, absolutely. And at that time I had like, I had no time. I was I was still doing the rehabs uh, on these smaller properties. I was doing uh, still doing cleanouts for banks. And I just had no time. So, so I thought, well, I could get up an hour earlier every day. So I usually get up at five. I get up at four in the morning. I type for an hour for four months to get that first book done. And then I get it done and it became a number one bestseller for a long time. And it's still up on the bestseller list because it's, the, the information is timeless. It, it is. If you understand the market cycles and buy right, you can ride the wave up and then you can hop off the merry-go-round before things go down. And That's the emerging market side. Now, if you understand the full cycle of the markets, the four phases, the transitions and what strategies to be using during each phase, which is explained in the book, then you can sit in your own backyard and make money in each particular phase with the right strategies. The key is recognizing the transitions. That's what people usually go wrong. Wow, wow, wow. And so you, you kind of dropped the C, so I'm going to pick up the breadcrumbs here. You said, they think I wrote the book to start an education company, but I yeah. wrote the book because I was at dinner. Somebody asked me about what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to make my father proud. Yeah. That's yeah but you did build book. an education company, right? I did. That came after the second book. So that one was number one for a while. They called me back and they said, can you write another book? You know, number one book. They're making money. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good because now, you know, I'm an author and that felt pretty good too. And uh, so I wrote the second book, Multifamily Millions. And um, they actually, I wrote a third book. You know, I wrote, you know, I wrote that book with Trump. And when they called me back, when I got the Multifamily Millions book, I started getting all kinds of calls from people. That's when I realized that, you know, you, you to put in a URL and give additional information, I started learning about information marketing and education. I thought, you know, that's another business. I could get into the uh, the education business. And it worked. And then when they came for me for the third book with Trump, first they didn't tell me it was Trump. What they said was, uh, we want you to write another book. And I'm like, no way. Because four o'clock in the morning, four months, I'm like, I'm done. And they said, well, you know, I think you might want to write the book with this one. And I said, well, who is it? They said, Trump. Donald Trump wants you to write a book with him. And I was like, hmm, that would really make my parents proud. That was, that was the only reason I did it again is because I wanted to make my parents proud. And uh, it all came back because I remember going to my next door neighbor's 25th wedding anniversary, people I grew up with. And my mother, as I, I came in a little bit late, and I, and my mother was already in the circle of friends. And when I came in, she, she looks over, she goes, oh, here's my son, Dave, the author. <laughs> Forget all the other stuff. Yeah. He's an author. <laughs> yeah, that worked. So were you a great student? <laughs> I wasn't a great student when I was in high school because I smoked a lot of pot. I had a really difficult childhood. I medicated myself on anything I could get my hands on, you know, for, for relief. 
from my pain, my, my mental pain. So I wasn't a great student there. And then when I was in college, I only, the only reason I went to college is because my mother didn't sign the papers to put me in the Marines because I knew I was screwed up and I wanted to write myself. And I figured the Marines would do it for me. And I wanted to become a Navy SEAL, but she wouldn't sign the pa- I was only 17. She wouldn't sign the paperwork. And uh, I ended up going to the college my father went to. And I was in a rock and roll band at the time. So I played all the frat houses. I did, you know, I got enough grades to get by. And so, so at the time I wasn't a, a good student, but in life, I'm a very good student and I'm very coachable. That's, you know, I think that's one of my gifts is when I find somebody that, that knows more than I do, then I'm very coachable. I just absorb as much information as I can. I've been often called the sponge by family members and you know, that, that, that guy's just a sponge. Even, you know, my father, here's an interesting story. My father has Alzheimer's. He just passed away a couple months ago and he had his Alzheimer's. And one time I was, I was taking care of him and he didn't know who I was. And he was introducing me to the pictures of the kids on the wall. It was me, my brother, my sister's family portrait of, of someone. I was six years old at the time. So he points to my brother, Jeff, and he says, oh, that one, this, this, and this. Then he points to Tammy. He says, this, this, and this. Then he points to me and he says, that one, that one. If he says he's going to do something, He's gonna do it. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Thanks, Dad. I'm glad that's the way you remember me. That's outstanding. So it sounds like you made them proud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. My mom's still alive, so that's awesome. That's outstanding. So you, you've you've done some really amazing things on the journey, and you've been teaching lots of people how to do syndication and buy multifamily property for probably a decade. Like as one of the first people we're, we're over 20 years, almost 20, 20 years. years, 20 years in the business. And you, man, like you originated kind of this multifamily education thing, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I don't know anybody who's doing it before you. There was nobody teaching. You know, that all started too because I was, uh, do you know Robin Thompson? So I used to teach at her boot camp. And uh, she said, we were, we were really good friends. We went through all of the, the, we were both seminar junkies. We see each other at all the seminars, Ron LeGrand seminars and Lou Brown and all those, you know, uh, even though I was doing multifamily, I still needed to flip single families to get my multifamilies. So I was going to all those. She went out and she was, she started teaching uh, her, Jeff Collar, a few other people that were, that were in that kind of group. I went off to do my multifamily stuff. I kind of lost track with everybody. And about eight years later, after I started a real estate brokerage company, I, I made the key mistake of managing my own business. You know, I always tell people don't manage your own properties, and which I don't do, but I manage my own business. And that became the biggest pain in the ass. But we became successful. We were like number three in the city of Brockton within three years and 26 agents starting from zero. And I'm driving in there one day and I just thought to myself, I'm not going in. I am not going in anymore. I hate that business. So I pulled over the side of the road. I started thinking, now what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I could teach. You know, at first I called my sister, who is my partner in the business, and I said, Tammy, I'm not coming in anymore. And she heard the tone in my voice and she knew exactly, you know, what I meant. And uh, she said, Well, what am I gonna do? I said, make Jack the manager and then have him figure it out. And then she said, What are you gonna do? I said, I don't know. I'm pulled over on the side of the road. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure it out here. And that's when I gave Robin a, ta- a call. She had already started teaching. And I said, Hey, let's get together. I haven't seen you in a while. Let's, you know, let's let's, let's talk. And she said, by the end of the day, that day that we spent together, she said, hey, come to my boot camp and, and teach. So I created, and I'd done so many rehabs, like 800 rehabs by then. And um, so I was teaching the last day of her boot camp on rehabs. And then I thought, you know, uh, I've got another niche and that's multifamily. Nobody's teaching that right now. And that's my, you know, that's where my real knowledge base is. That's my big portfolio. And um, I said, how about if I teach multifamily? And she said, absolutely. And that's how it took off. 
That's amazing. <laughs> How'd you do your first deal? How'd you go from fixing and flipping to doing multifamily? Oh, I wasn't fixing and flipping. My first deal was a three family. It was a three family in, in Brockton. It was, um, I had seen an interview with Harry Helmsley that said there are a group of people out there. Well, Harry started with nothing in New York City, um, started buying multifamily properties and ended up, ended up owning the Empire State Building. So the interviewer says, Harry, what is, it, what is it about apartment buildings that kept you going? Harry said, I always liked the idea that a group of people would pool their money together and give it to me so I could pay off the mortgage every month. So I could pay for management companies to take care of the tenants and take their phone calls and collect the rents. So I could hire maintenance guys to swing the hammers and take out the trash and clean the toilets. And at the end of the month, they give me so much money that I had extra money, money that I could go out and put into a savings account, go out and spend it or, or, or reinvest. And I thought, you know, a light bulb went off my head. And I thought, you know, if that's true, that if that's really true, I want in. And uh, I, I realized it was true. I, I went to my real estate investment group. I had this great big new idea. They're all single family people, the majority of them. They all told me it was the worst idea ever, you know. Uh, but I still thought it was a good idea in the back of my mind. And I, I, there was a couple of people that were doing it. So I started taking them out to lunch. And they started telling me and teaching me the ropes. And uh, one time... Um, I was in the middle of buying my first and second property. I had no money. I started with credit cards and uh, I had two more under contract. And I was thinking, where am I going to get the money to, to, to do these deals? And it was the bank there that I was buying. It was just me and the attorney. And then it hit me. I said to the attorney, you close a lot of deals, right? He says, yeah. I says, you know, the people that give the hard money for the deals, right? He says, yeah. I says, I need money for, for two deals. I said, "Who refer me. So he said, there's this guy down the Cape, his name's Mark, and you know he only works three days a week. He's retired. He used to own a couple thousand units, and he'll only do business with you if he likes you. He's a hard money lender. So I went down there. I wore my best polyester suit, the one that I wore at high school graduation. It still fit me. And uh, I walked in there, and I was telling him about my deal. I showed him all the, all, all the things about it, and um, we just hit it off. We both have like this weird, really weird sense of humor. And uh, we hit it off, and he became my first mentor. And he's the one that taught me how to be a really conservative multifamily investor. Wow. And so this is a three family. And then you yeah, scale so when, from there. When we did that first deal, it was a full nine months before I pulled the trigger on the first deal. I knew how to do it, but I was so afraid to do it. I was bird dogging for other people because I figured, you know, I could make some money that way and I wouldn't have to actually do the deal, you know? And then I got a partner. My father kept telling me, you're going down, you're going down. So I got my best, <laughs> friend, got my best friend to come in and we were both broke. You know, it's like, hey, Rob, you know, let's start investing in multifamily properties in Brockton. We can buy them for below replacement costs and they cash flow. I mean, that's a winning formula. And he's like, he says, I'm in. And I said, all right, but I got to warn you. I, I, I wanted to be totally transparent with him. And I said, I got to warn you. My father tells me that if we do this, we're going down. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at the ground. He looked back up. And he said, Dave. How much lower can we go? And I was like, he's right. We're both broke. He's working the second shift at a clothing store, you know, putting the clothes in boxes, you know, struggling with a landscaping company. And I was like, you're right. So let's do it. So finally, uh, nine months, this three family comes up, four bedrooms, each floor. The more bedrooms you have, the more money you're going to make. All the guys that we bird dogged to were, were crazy busy. They, they, we kept trying to get them to buy it because I wanted the fee, you know, and they didn't. It was almost like the hand of God was coming through the clouds, slapping us on the face saying, hey, I've already thrown you guys a bunch of deals. Take this one, will you? This is the one. And I did. And uh, within three months, we had three more. Within six months, we had nine. And within the first year, we had 
11 deals. Within the first three years, we had almost 40. That's how fast wow. that it And that's why the first deal is always the hardest deal to do. I mean, we've been teaching since 2002. I, the same pattern that I had, I see over and over again with students. You know, and I tell them right at the beginning now, this first deal is going to be the hardest, you know, but if you can get through it and get through the obstacles and get through your limiting beliefs and get it done, boom, the, you know, it's like the sky opens up, the sun shines down. You know, your love life gets better. Your face clears up. <laughs> it's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> so, all right, that's fast. So 11 deals in the first year. Did I hear that right? A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, yeah, 40 within three. 40 within three. So you made money on all those deals, right? Oh man, the, the amount of cash flow coming in was just unbelievable. I just had never had that much money before. And then on paper, the equity was in the millions within the first three years. That's why I learned about market cycles because I knew the market was changing and I knew I had all this money. You know, we had all this money in equity, but I didn't want to lose it. And I thought, well, I don't want to go into cash either and just kind of sit up because now I know how to play the game at a small scale anyways. I was afraid to buy anything bigger than a three to six. But then I started learning about market cycles. When I went to Northeastern, that college education, one of the things I took was economics. And I, I liked economics because, you know, my life was so disorderly. You know, I wanted to get into the Marine so I could like get order in my life and discipline. And that's what economics is. Economics is order, you know, and it says basically if this happens and there's a probability that this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. So for the first time in my life, I was understanding order. So I was gravitated towards it. As a matter of fact, I, I, I majored in finance, but by the time I got to um, graduation, my advisor said, oh, you, you missed it by one point. I was like, well, I'm not going to graduate? He says, no, you're not going to get your double major. I was like, oh, I'm a finance major. He said, aren't you a finance economics major? I said, no, just finance. And he said, why'd you take all these economics classes? I said, oh, because I like them. So I went back to those books and I started opening them back up because I remember, you know, I remembered about the markets, the market cycles, and I opened them up and I started reading about them. And that's what got me down to, uh, that's what taught me about job growth, follow job growth, follow household, household formation. And, um, and, and there's, there's things called multiplier effects. And I did, and that's what got me down to Montgomery, Alabama. They were building a Kia plant there, bringing 5,000 new jobs in. Uh, there was a small multiplier effect of three. That's very small. I invest in Huntsville and the multiplier effect's 11. So for every one job, three more jobs are coming in. So now 20,000 jobs are coming into a market. I also learned about barriers to entry. So Montgomery is surrounded by floodplains, which means you can't build in the floodplains. So supply is going to remain the same. Demand's going to go up. That only means one thing for values. They're going to go up. So we did well in Montgomery while we were there. Wow. So has that knowledge protected you from ever doing a bad deal? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, my biggest bad deal was early on. I'd done two in Montgomery. I'd done a 350 unit in Jackson. They were momentum plays. All these deals, cash flows are closing. Then I get this deal in Montgomery. I'm in um, Huntsville. It's a 400 unit. 
And I'm thinking, I could do 400 units. I just did 350 in Jackson. But the problem was this wasn't a momentum play. This was a repositioning. This was 40, 46% occupied. And I, what I didn't realize at the time was 46 uh, was physical occupancy. It was 28% economic occupancy, which meant only 28% of the people were paying. And what I, what I still didn't know at the time was that that's going to go down before it goes up. So my my deal that I thought was going to take two years and a couple million dollars to rehab, put back on the market and put $3 million in my pocket with my investors ended up taking me six years to get through. I paid all my investors off and I lost money on the deal. It was brutal. There were so many things I didn't know. You know, you, you know, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you get into the situation where you were where you're exposed. You know, so and I had done so many rehabs. I thought I'd done a ton of rehabs. Why can't I? I could certainly do four hundred in a property. You know, one property going to be easier. Well, it wasn't. What came up? Like, I mean, you didn't have the income because you were vacant. But like, what were some of the things that came up along that journey? Because that's a big deal. Yeah, inventory. I I I didn't realize how important it was to control your inventory on a, on a property to have inventory controls in place. So my lead maintenance guy actually was selling five gallon drums of paint out of one of the units. So he was buying it off of my account. He was selling it to other contractors in the area. So he had his own business going on. I didn't realize that when you reposition a property and you, you know, you get out, what you do is you get rid of the, the slow payers, the no payers and the drug dealers. And, but what I didn't realize is that if you don't, if you're not on top of that property on a regular basis, those people come back. And so I had two rounds of the property going up and then sliding back down again, property going up and then sliding back down before I figured it out. I didn't realize race relations. You know, I had I had white, black and Hispanics on the property and I didn't realize, you know, the different problems that that were that were associated with the three different races being on the property. Uh, so I had to learn about that. Uh, this property didn't have its own entry and exit. It was actually a street. And in order to reduce the crime, I really had to be able to close off one of the exits. So, so the people, you know, so the drug dealers going in there would feel trapped that they couldn't get back out of there being chased by the police. And uh, that took me a long time to be able to do that. Uh, so, and then uh, in terms of just a simple, the rehab plan, one of the things that happened was, and I didn't realize is they were uh, cannibalizing other units to get the, the parts for the, if we get that, like the, the washer dryers, the dishwashers, the miscellaneous stuff, they're cannibalizing even full kitchen cabinet sets. They're cannibalizing other units to, to, to do these, to, to uh, fulfill the units that are on the list. And then I'm thinking that, you know, I've got this list of what needs to be done, not realizing that now, you know, I have this property, this unit over here that maybe it's a 30% repair. Well, it's been cannibalized. You know, and it's a total repair. It's a gut job. So there's there so many lessons in that job. You know, even managers and management scams. And I got taken to school. <laughs> <laughs> and so did it make you squeamish? Like, were you scared to do another 400 unit deal? Or were you like, ah, no big deal. We'll do it again. I didn't, I didn't do another repositioning that size. I, I went smaller on the next repositioning. I did, I think it was a 60 unit. You know, so I didn't have this just massive beast. And 400 units is like its own little town. It was just huge. So, uh, yeah, I learned not to take on such a big repositioning. And, and that's what I would teach, too. I would teach people. I actually, uh, I did a repositioning boot camp. And I would take people to that site and show them all the mistakes I made. You know, so they wouldn't do it when they were doing the repositionings. When people would come to me at boot camps and say, oh, Dave, I've got this deal. It's, it's uh, 88 units and it's empty. 
you know, what, you know, what should I do? And I'd be like, run, (laughs) run from that deal. So I, I think I passed on a lot of lessons and the people that didn't, you know, you get great advice. Sometimes you take it, sometimes you don't. And I'm the same way. And uh, it, there's this girl that that came to me with a 110 unit, her very first deal, vacant at a boot camp. And she says, you know, this is in, this is in Mississippi. What do you think? You know, I get these great numbers. She was actually from Hungary, no, Poland. And she says, I got these great numbers, yada, yada, yada. I said, if this is your first deal, don't do it. And she said, well, blah, blah. She's trying to convince me to tell her to do the deal. And I'm telling her, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then like, at, by that time, it was probably my eighth year teaching. And I said, all right, if you're going to do that deal, these are the people that you want to partner with, you know, other students that you want to partner with that know how to do this deal. So partner with these students. And uh, she didn't do it. And three years later, she got the deal done. Okay. And she ended up making money. But she says to me over, even today, she says to me, I wish I didn't do that deal. She lost three years of her life in that deal. And the reason I know her so well, she had twins and I had twins, you know, so we kept in contact you know, after my twins were born. And uh, so she's like, I wish I didn't do that deal. So, you know, a lot of folks in the industry, you're teaching or promising people you can do deals, no money, no, no cash, no credit, no experience, no nothing. And these are the type of deals that most people are being presented and they're being asked to pay full retail and so on and so forth. What what do you say to the listeners who are out there and like, I'm going to get a deal done and this is what's in front of them as an option to buy? This is a really risky time in the market because this market's going to change. And there's a real push right now from the office investors and the retail investors to get into the multifamily space because it's a safe haven from COVID. So they're pushing the cap rates down. They're pushing the prices up. So people that are buying now, it really has to have a good story. Like for instance, I just, on my podcast, I was interviewing one of my students and he just bought a deal. It was a pretty big one, 300 plus units from a developer. He's buying it for $45 million, but it had two value adds to it. And when the value, and it was the simple value out of raising rents to market and then some cosmetics, but raising it, getting that done would bring the value up to 62 million. So, I mean, that's a, that's a play in this market because you've got a good value add, you know, you can execute on the value add. You know, I always say to people, the questions you have to ask on a property is what's wrong? Can I fix it? You know, and can I, and now in this market, it's, can I fix it timely? You know, before COVID, Two years ago, I was presented with this 300-unit deal out in uh, Oklahoma with this, this rehab. And it looked like the rehab was going to be two years. And I forecast it out. And uh, the election was coming. And this market was going to change. And I was like, that's too close to the market change, to the correction in the market. If we miss it, we're screwed. So I'm not going to do that deal. So that has actually been extended out because of COVID um, a couple more years. And so we're like, so the deals that are being done now, I know there are a lot of people doing deals and they're really tight. The cap rates are low and they're, they're not getting any money themselves other than what they're getting on fees. That is a really risky model. It's risky for not only the investor that brings the deal to the table, because you know when you're that tight, anything could go wrong and your investors don't get their returns. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're no good. And then the other thing is, is it's risky for the investor because if the sponsor doesn't have anything into the deal other than the fees that they're getting, when times go bad, there's no reason for them to stick around, you know? So the deals that are the one-off deals that are being done right now, the good ones are, are deals with stories, you know, good bones with stories. Stories. What's the best story that you've had on a deal? <laughs> the best story I've had on a, that's an interesting, nobody's ever asked me that question before. The, well, the best story always is, is when you buy from a, 
a, an owner um, that was afraid to raise the rents because they thought either the tenants were going to leave uh, or the tenants were going to ask for repairs. So therefore, the rents are well below market and they sell you the property based on actual values. And all you have to do is walk into the property and you raise those rents and you, there's probably a, um, a bunch of different maintenance and repair and maintenance that needs to be done. But you just basically walk into the property, raise the rents, and then you've got a great value add. Those are the deals we love the best. Here are the deals that we absolutely love are what I call the micro repositionings. These are deals where ownership is somewhat absent for who knows why. Let the property slide down. The good tenants have already left. Okay. They can't be replaced with other good tenants, but because the property sliding down and, and the, the good quality tenants won't move into a property with as obvious repairs and maintenance, even if it's just starting like peeling paint, miscellaneous stuff like that, you can't replace the same quality of tenant. So the quality of tenant starts going down, gets to a point where they start offering concessions and then they start lowering rents, but they can't maintain the rent level based on the market. Say the market's at 94%. Now this starts sliding below 90 and that's like the sweet spot between 85 and 90. 85% is considered equilibrium. That's where you get the good financing. And once you dip below that, it's a repositioning. Uh, so between 85 and 90, you've got this property that's slipping down, but you grab it before it slipped down below the repositioning line. And then you basically do cosmetics to it, treat the tenants right, and then start raising the rents back up to market. And within 12 to 18 months, you've got a property you can refinance. And if it's a 100-unit property, you can typically make about a million dollars on a property like that. Those are the sweetest deals out there. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's giving the math. So is there like minimum rent for you? Like if something's renting at $400, do you immediately walk away or are you okay regardless of what the rents are as long as it's somewhere in the market rate for the yeah, all, MSA all, that you're in? It all depends on the, uh, yeah, it all depends on the area. So rents are always local. So you do, uh, uh, you do a market analysis on the rents to determine what they should be and, and, where, and where they are on that property. And hopefully there's a big, what they call loss to lease which means that they're not getting what the market's getting. Love it, love it, love it. So Dave, as we wrap up, just give us one piece of advice. What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? Mindset. You know, you're not going to get anywhere unless you have the right mindset. So it doesn't matter what business you're in, whether it be real estate, cleaning ceiling tiles, whatever. If you don't have the right mindset, you're not going to be successful. And I tell this to students all the time. At the beginning of when I was teaching, I didn't realize this. It was certainly true in my life. You know, I'd been through this huge transition in my 20s uh, on mindset. And that's what helped me to become successful. And I continue to do it. Reading constantly because your mind is a battle every day. You know, every day you wake up and there's this battle going on, negative versus positive. And you've got to, you've got to calibrate it. The positive always starts. I mean, the negative always starts out. You've got to recalibrate it immediately to, to shift over to the positive. And that is a, um, I mean, those, that, that's an exercise. That's like, that's like going to the gym every day, you know? And the way that you maintain that is you, you, you feed yourself good information. You know, the books out there, the podcasts that you listen to, the exercises that you do. Like when I wake up in the morning, you know, you're always awake before your eyes are, are awake. You know, your consciousness wakes up. The first thing I say is, this is going to be a great day. This is going to be a great day. Before any negative thought can get in, this is going to be a great day, you know? And then I start doing gratitude. And once you start, when you're doing gratitude and you think about the things that are, are great in your life, you know, you're thankful for it, whether it's just the blanket that's over you, the fact that you have a blanket over you, you know, that opens you up to receive. And from gra- from starting the day with a gratitude standpoint, then you get into your morning, your morning routine, whatever that is. But the biggest thing is, is feeding yourself the information that you need to overcome your limiting beliefs and obstacles because everybody has them. Wow. Everybody's got limiting beliefs. That's yeah. crazy. And so for the person out there like, no, I don't. Of course, I, I, I can do anything. That's awesome. I mean, anybody, people with that type of an attitude, that, that's good. But most, you know, 
there's a, I haven't met too many people like that. I have, I've met people that like, I believe I can do anything. You probably believe you can do every, anything, right? But we also know that to be able to do anything, we've got to be feeding ourselves the right fuel, you know, because if we're not feeding ourselves the right fuel, then we can't do anything. Just like I'm training for the Boston Marathon right now. And I was talking to my coach and I was like, I did a 13 mile run on Saturday. And I just like, it was awful. I, it, it started out great, you know, and I thought I was doing good. And I look at my watch and I'm running 13 minute miles. I'm like, what? I feel good. Things seem to be going good. And then like two, like two miles later, I completely, like, I, I feel like I have no energy. So for the, now the next nine miles, like I'm just dragging myself through this, you know, through the hills around my house. And um, I talk to my coach. It's like, well, what had happened? She goes, well, what'd you eat the day before? How did you feel yourself? And I thought I drove home from Maine the day before I was in the car for five hours with my kids, you know, stopping off at McDonald's, getting happy meals. And I'm eating the hamburgers because they won't, you know? <laughs> So I was like, I didn't fuel myself properly for that run. It's the same thing in anything in life. You know, you got to fuel yourself properly. Great advice, Dave. I, I was thinking about something because you brought up something to me a long time ago, and I, I think it's pretty cool. And so you have like free days in your week. Would you be willing to talk to the listeners a little bit about how you structure your weeks just so they can get that tidbit as well? Yeah. So the the free, I have a couple of different types of free days. Now, for the first of all, I, I structure two days during the week where I do nothing but concentrate on revenue generating. And I don't let any, I usually don't sit here in the office because just things happen. People know I'm in the office, you know, even though my door's closed, you know, they wait till it opens. They know not to knock, which is good because I might be in there sleeping. <laughs> which I have this big red couch there. But yeah, so you have these, you have, you structure your days. So there are days where you take care of stuff. And then there are days where you think. So on those days when you think, you think about you know what your goals are. And mostly in our businesses, we're looking for revenue generating ideas. And, and if, so all you do is you work on revenue generating. Now that I'm a father with three kids, and um, you know, do you have kids? I do too. Yeah, two girls. So you know what it's like, right? So it's like very. You have, now you have very little free time in your life. And your batteries start to wind down, especially when you're running businesses, you know, and then you're and you're running a household, and your batteries start to wind down, wind down. Well, mine will get to a certain point, and I'll be and I'll announce I got to have a Dave day, right? And the Dave day is Dave just going off and doing nothing, you know, somewhere that's really nice. I, I used to have a house up in New Hampshire. I sold it right before COVID, unfortunately. I thought them nobody knew COVID was going to happen, but that was the time that the market was supposed to go down up there, and I was going to sell at the height of the market and then buy a bigger house. But uh, I would go up there and just sit by the river and, and just do nothing. Just like look out into the distance, you know, just to recharge. Everybody needs to recharge and people recharge differently. But you got to recognize when you do need to recharge and take that time out if you can. Love it. Love it. Dave, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and sharing two decades of wisdom with our listeners. It's been extremely educational and the story's been entertaining for sure. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And to the listeners, the pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.